Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast and our new series, The Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austen. Episode 6, The Great Forgetting. All women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Aphra Ben, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. Those were the words of Virginia Woolf in 1929, two and a half centuries after Ben's death, when a female writer was still considered an oddity. So how did the women poets, novelists, essayists and letter writers of the 18th century slip so easily out of the canon? Perhaps Alexander Pope's Dunciad, an attack on Grubscreet and commercial writing we talked about in earlier episodes, gives us a clue. Here's his verdict on Eliza Haywood. See in the circle next Eliza placed two babes of love close clinging to her waist. The goddess then, who best can send on high the salient spout far streaming to the sky? Yes, she is judging a literal pissing contest between two publishers. Her sexual favours, it's implied, are also the prize. This week we'll be talking about attacks like that on women writers, as well as the more subtle process of canon formation, and the attempt to make writing seem like an unsuitable job for a woman. We'll also ask, how different are things today, when most novel readers are women, but men dominate the literary pages and the literary prizes? Sophie Colombo and Liz Edwards join me. And Sophie, I'm going to start with you. Mm-hmm. When did this great forgetting, which is which is a fine phrase and which we've nicked from someone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so give him credit. His name is... Clifford Siskin. And it is... Uh, when did that process really start? It's difficult to pinpoint it exactly. I mean, I think the point maybe we should start from is that actually um, rampantly misogynist and anxious for their masculinity as they were, many of the reviewers and male writers of the 18th century are not to blame for this. They were not forgetting these women. They were not sidelining them. These women had no problem achieving fame in their own day. And I guess the other thing to point out, which I never really grasped until recently, is that you know you have this idea that because George Eliot and you know the Brontes had to write under male names, you sort of assume, well, maybe no one knew about women, that women writers were women. Mm. But these women were, some were anonymous, mm-hmm. like Frances Burney, but lots of others published under their own names, didn't mm-hmm. they? Absolutely. Um... Yeah, anonymity is a massive thing in the 18th century, and it's been it's been shown recently um, in a fantastic statistical project that um, you know I think it's something like three quarters of novels in the late 18th century were published anonymously. But some do use their own names, and what this means, this huge figure of anonymity, is that where women do use their own names, you can say a real attempt to you know write your name for posterity there, a real attempt to brand yourself author-wise. So um, that takes on extra meaning. I mean, at some point in the 19th century, moving into the 20th, um, these women start to be written out. Um, Bernie might be a bit of a good illustration here. I mean, she's incredibly popular right up until, you know, sort of um, 18... 14 when she publishes her final novel and the reviews of that novel start to take on very very misogynist 
undertone. Um, I think it's John Wilson Croker, one of the most influential reviewers of the period, says of her latest novel, This is Evelina, but Evelina grown old and haggard, the lips withered, you know, (laughs) etc, etc. So, you know, you can see how he's binding up her physical body with her book in that way and saying, you know, you 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 were good when you were young, your early work was it. But now, you know, this more mature work is, is, you know, not, not, doing it for us. Um, And then as you kind of move through the 19th century, Bernie becomes famous as a diarist. They start to say, well, it's her observations of Dr. Johnson really that are of value, not her own fiction. You get through to the early 20th century and suddenly she's Fanny Bernie. She's kind of frozen in this, you know, young girl observing the male greats and writing her diary sort of image. and then by the time you get to Ian Watts, he's sort of saying, oh, she's, uh, you know, in the 1950s, this is, um, he's saying, oh, she's, um, you know, she's a sort of footnote to Jane Austen. Jane Austen took a couple of themes, a couple of sort of images from her. And then after the 1970s, you get a reclaim. So that's a kind of, that's only one writer, of course, but I think it can serve as a sort of um, way to show how women's contributions they can never be erased that you know they can never be made to not happen but they can be sidelined and moved out of the idea of literature or of the canon and liz how much did that was that made easier by the the forms and subjects that those middle of the 18th century writers wrote about you know they weren't writing victorian state of the nation kind of novels were they big broad sweeps about you know the 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 purported to address universal themes yeah, I think in that context, we need to think about what Ian Watt was responding to, which is not much before him, is um, the new criticism, which I think would have been much more sympathetic to um, these big, broad themes of universal human experience, which so might... For those of us whose remembrance of 20th century critical movements, so is that new historicism? No, that is... No, new no, criticism. Is that yeah. close textual reading then? Close textual reading, yeah. You don't really need to look beyond the text. The text will give you everything that you could ever need to know about it. And it, it's... Oh, I wrote from... a blistering essay about that in the Abada or text. And you're like, oh, but language itself is an endlessly deferred series of signifiers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it develops from about the 1930s to about the 1950s. Is associated with Levis, the critic. He kind of defines it. Um, so that's what. So are we having started this series by slagging off Ian Watt pretty comprehensively? Is that a motor defence for him? Is that he was in turn responding to a, a, a previous critical? I mean, movement? certainly of his time in that sense. Um, I mean, how kind of how much this was a project for him to write out or not deliberately to exclude? I don't know. Um, I'd like to put in a word for 1986, if I can, at this point, because 1986 is kind of an exceptional year in this debate um, and in reclaiming the rise of the novel for women because we have two books, The Mothers of the Novel and we have The Rise of the Woman Novelist. Um, Mothers of the Novel is a project that... um, so that's Dale Spender's book, Dale isn't Spender's it? Dale Spender's book. And that looks at women writers before Jane Austen. Yeah, she set herself the task of, of basically... She, she had noticed where are all the women coming out of, I guess, the 70s um, consciousness-raising decade. She, she wondered where are all the women. She set herself the task of reading about 550 novels. She didn't rate them all. She's she quite upset about that. But, for example, Ian Watt doesn't even mention Mariah Edgeworth. And she's quite... She's quite dry about this, and she says, well, the only reason I could think you wouldn't 
you wouldn't mention Mariah Edgeworth is if you just hadn't read her. <laughs> Which is entirely, I would have thought, entirely possible because that project of reclaiming women writers is something that, as you say, over the last 30 or 40 years has happened. It's still got a quite a way to go, hasn't it? I mean, I, I remember reading about, you know, romantic women poets that were only now just mm-hmm. really being interested. Or Absolutely. Tudor women poets like, I'm going to say, Amelia Latimer. Lanya. Lanya. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that actually that people would have no idea that there were women mm-hmm. writing in, you know, or, or the female, the mystics of the, of the Middle Ages. That project has had to be done throughout the whole of history. And this is what kind of irritates me when you get... Um, I think I was in the Women's Hour quiz at, uh, at Christmas and they had a thing, a, 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 a clip of any questions of Max Hastings saying in his Max Hastings voice, well, the thing is, the trouble is that these women just haven't done anything throughout <laughs> history. And I just got to ah <laughs> at that point. But it, the, it, that's just... It's just not... Particularly when you look at the 18th century, you just cannot... Even, even Ian Watt in his superlatively cussing out way but admits that they have quantitative dominance there are lots of women there let's address the quality issue though because there are people who will argue it's a darwinistic thing like you know tom jones as a novel is just better than the new atlantis i mean i think there's a relatively easy way to tackle that which is to ask why um you know people like often this you know i'm I'm staking my own critical colors to the mass here i'm a I'm a historicist, you know, I'm not interested in saying one sort of literature is better than another. I'm interested in kind of looking at what lit- literature can tell us about a historical moment, about power within that historical moment. But I have colleagues who, you know, will say, um, oh, you know, sort of, well, the, it's about aesthetic value. And the aesthetic value of, you know, a Shakespeare play is much greater than the aesthetic value of, you know, whatever else it might be. Um, and yet they're never actually really able to tell you why. Um, I think we need to, I think one of the most important things we can do as critics is to ask ourselves, why do we think what we say is good is good? Let's interrogate value itself and see where it comes from. Because otherwise, surely we're just uh, treading a well-trodden path and there's not actually anything very fun about that. Well, that's something that I, I think about a lot when, in terms of, of now, and you get arguments about award ceremonies and diversity. Um, Ian Leslie, one of our writers, wrote a brilliant piece for us last year about the Oscars, in which he was like, you know, the Oscars mm. were, you know, the best for best film were American Sniper, which was like Warring Man, the one about drumming, which was like Drumming Man, the <laughs> one about high school, but um, baseball, basketball, which was like, you know, basketball for the man, <laughs> and and it was re- it was just it, they was it was it, um, Birdman, which eventually won, and you know, which was like middle aged crisising man, and it was it was just so obvious that these were just six heroes journeys basically yeah, yeah. and there were no heroines journeys there and, and and that's one of the things where i think you begin to see uh, uh, you begin to sort of think that certain subjects are more serious i think that's this what is it is exactly it, the, it, the domestic the feminine you know interpersonal relationships there isn't the other bit that quote is sort of talking about well of course novels are very good at talking about like people's feelings mm. as if that's kind of like not what you know, that's not a fit subject for so It's not important. Mm, no. um, this is the thing. I think when we start asking ourselves these questions about value, about why we think something is good, the answers are often quite uncomfortable. They're often bound up with ideas about gender, with ideas about race, with ideas about class. And it can be quite uncomfortable to And about public that. and private spheres, right? Exactly. So War and Peace is a better novel because it's about, quote-unquote, big themes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what... I, I, you know, this, this idea, and I think this idea about that war is manly is really fascinating. They, um, they asked a whole load of historians in The Guardian last week about, mm-hmm. you know, why don't women's history books sell as well? Yeah. 
Uh, and some of the Simon Sharma gave a slightly irritating out when he just named female historians that he knew. <laughs> and you were like, yeah, okay, right, well, yeah, we all know that they exist. Why the question? Answer the question, Simon. <laughs> Give that one an F. But um, but Amanda Foreman's answer was interesting, which she said, you know, writing about the American Civil War, if you write women out of that story, you are not doing good history because this was the first example of total war. You know, about blitzing a civilian population, about you know, about raping women, about trying to crush people's morale. If you make it about men on battlefields, mm-hmm. you've actually only written hard the history Absolutely. and I think that's something that you see in, in, in the way that the novel formation you know the formation of the canon around that has happened if you write out these women you are telling a bad history of the rise of the novel mm-hmm. there's, there's a kind of conspiracy theory version of this too which is a slightly darker um, version of the story which says that actually we might have forgotten some of these women writers because men came alongside them, after them, and cherry-pick the best bits for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's another way in which we've lost these women, forgotten about them. Um, Charlotte Smith is a really good example. She's a poet and a novelist. In terms of her poetry, William Wordsworth says she's a woman the English language knows, English literature, the English language knows much more, owes more to her um, than it will ever know. And that's basically because he's learned from her work. He's internalised the good bits, taken them for himself, and then moved on. Somebody like Dickens learns how to write a novel about the law from Charlotte Smith, again, unacknowledged. So there is this this sense in which women's stories are there, and Mm -hmm. yet we're calling them something else. Walter Scott, you know, the truism is that Walter Scott is the first historical novelist. No, he's not. The, the, The women who come, well, the historical novelists who come before him are mainly women. And he's quite upfront in some ways about what he's taken from them. Novelists like um, Jane West, like Charlotte Smith, he takes, you know, certain names from them. He takes, you know, lifts uh, themes and images. Um, but it's only very, very recently, thanks to the fantastic work of people like Stuart Curran, for example, that we're starting to to see that and to see that actually the, the, the fated, you know, much fated geniuses um, who have most uh, frequently been men. Actually, it's built on this foundation of female intellect and female labour. So there was a really interesting um, piece in, I think it was in the Literary uh, Lit Hub, about, by Siri Hustvet, who's married to Paul Oster, so they're both novelists, about uh, Carl Ovi Nalsgaard, which we discussed on a New Statesman podcast previously, and about the difference between, you know, she, he is doing confessional writing, which has already always been seen as this very feminine genre. You're kind of just sort of like going on about how you actually really slightly regret having children and, you know, the kind of mundanity of your life. But the the trick is because it's a man doing it, people are kind mm. of like, oh, well, this is kind of... And I, sometimes I feel a bit like that when I read Pamela or Clarissa. Pamela is... I'm going to... I know you don't believe in value judgments. I'm going to drop one here. <laughs> Pamela is just a, not a... It's not... It's no, it's no good, is it? It's no good. It's just no good. It's very clunky. People's dialogue is totally unbelievable. Although, I, I, I mean, Italy, it's hard once you've read all the... Once you've read Shamala and the anti-Pamela and all the parodies mm-hmm. of it because it is... You know, you do get ye serving wench turns up and goes, Lork's a lady, you go, you know, I'm only a humble serving wench. Um, but it's not really Clarissa I would make an argument for is is much better. But those are those do seem if if I if if someone now told me actually Sammy Richardson had, had published them on behalf of his wife and just put his name on them, I'd mm. probably go, Yeah, actually I can I can really see that. But he gets to be Samuel Richardson, writing in an explicitly very feminine domestic romance setting, doesn't he? Mm. And suddenly it's it's critically interesting and it's critically valid. Now I think the same thing does go on today. I think if a you know 
in some ways, if a woman writes about the breakdown of a relationship, then it's chiclet. If a man writes about the breakdown of a relationship, then it's a searing expose of the American soul. You know, it's... Yeah, I think Laurie had this great line. Laurie Penny, our writer, about, you know, men write memoirs. You know, they write they write literary journeys, and then but you know, but but women write confessional literature, and I think mm-hmm. there is I think there is really a difference in 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 framing. Now, you've written a novel, I have, yep. How much did you end up feeling that there were gendered expectations about the subject, about the marketing of it, about you as an author? Um, <laughs> I should we should we should plug the novel. It's called Rights. It's available from all good bookshops from Amazon. If you don't mind tax avoidance, um, but but you know, did they? No, I presume no one at any point went. She's put like a lovely, maybe like a woman on the phone, like a big pink heart on the cover. Yeah, no, I was lucky. I think in that my publisher um, and I agreed very much on what kind of a novel it was. They didn't want to drive it into a sort of um, niche that I felt it didn't fit and the cover was extremely gender neutral. It was uh, it was sort of a rainbow spun sort of title. Um, I did get a, I did get an interview to do some kind of an odd, uh, sorry, I requested an odd kind of interview called Between the Sheets, which was for a, um, a, a TV channel that was somehow associated with Nuts magazine. Um, <laughs> and I, didn't, I decided not to do that one. Um, you know, that's an example of how, you know, one... Um, you know, sort of, you're supposed to take up every invitation that you receive as a as a novelist. Did you just um, think maybe these people are not my? I thought they might not be audience. legit somehow. I don't know. Maybe I was over suspicious. Liz, I think that, but that's, but that, I mean, it's interesting that Sophie mentions marketing because so much of gendered expectations of literature now, I think, are about marketing, about the packaging up of authors and of books as a specific thing. How much did that happen? Because. Richardson's an interesting example, isn't he? Because he was a printer, so he could do the mad papers in Clarissa because he could do crazy typography for himself. But lot, most other women didn't have access to, to how they were marketed, how they were sold. How much did they get massaged into sort of figures by publishers and by, by printers? Into figures? You know, like, into, into the idea of like being sold as kind of, you know, this... Like Mrs. Meek, I presume. Yeah. There was a kind of character of Mrs. Meek that people sort of saw. Or, you know, the housewife superstar or, you know, the great, the young, you know, adventuress or whatever. Yeah, I guess there's this whole kind of social world of novels that we don't think about that often when, when we read them as literary critics. I mean, Pamela is a good example in terms of being a, a phenomenon. You know, now you'd get your, your Pamela tea towel or, you know, people ringing the bells to celebrate the wedding between Pamela and Mr. B, that kind of thing. Um, I think you'll find I wrote a really very seminal essay on, <laughs> uh, on the links between Pamela and Fifty Shades of Grey as literary phenomena. Because I think that, but I do, I, but I do think that does, that does stress it. And, and, and again, it maybe is about Samuel Richardson as a, a male author having that more prestige, is it became a kind of literary phenomenon, didn't it? There were sort of Pamela fans that you can mm, buy mm. and there was all kinds, of, like, there's a lot of merch yeah. around that. Some of these women are really incredibly famous in their own time. And we haven't mentioned Sidney Owenson, but she's one of the Irish novelists who comes after um, Mariah Edgeworth and she takes that that form of the Irish novel onto the next level and it becomes uh, a novel of na- novel of nation becomes um, a nationalistic form in her hands she's arguing for the cause of Ireland under colonialism and she becomes a real celebrity um, in a way that I think we'd recognize now so she dresses up as figures from her novels um, she she markets the novel I guess through her own ability to perform her, her characters and her novel and she's properly famous and yet completely forgotten so she gets no mention in the rise of the novel stories until women come along women academics critics try to 
to to rebalance that story. That's interesting because I have never heard of her, and and is that I mean, do you think that partly there's that to do with being Irish? Is that that's just we still are so locked into it, actually English literary culture, yeah. and particularly in the way that it's taught in universities. I mean, it could be, and that's why I've um, mentioned Hester Piozzi's Welsh perspective in an earlier um, episode because. That's been a very new development, that we're looking more to the margins, that we're looking to Scottish literature and Irish literature and seeing what women did there and seeing that actually at times it's quite different. So there could be um, a form of a political novel which is very different from the early 18th century, but which for somebody like Sidney Owenson was really, really successful. So 1806, The Wild Irish Girl. And she becomes then the figure of the Wild Irish Girl, Glorvina, from her own novel, um, are we quite London-centric in all of this that we've been discussing? So Charlotte Smith, presumably if, if, if Wordsworth was, was plundering her for stuff, was she a nature poet? Yeah, she writes a lot about landscape. Um, she's one of the first novelists to be really powerful writing about landscape in fiction. She sets her own, her own poetry within um, the novels as well, so she's very innovative in that way. The poetry is very strong on landscape, seascape, beach scenes, that kind of thing. It's really powerful. Uh, and then Wordsworth comes along and, and learns how to do this. And if we think about women novelists of the 19th century, Sophie, George Eliot, the Brontes, mm-hmm. how much would they have been conscious of, of their forebears? Because I've never had that. I mean, really good question. Jane Austen, I mean, obviously you can mm. see the links between her and, and Bernie and, and Edgeworth mm-hmm. writing that, that sort of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of bildungsroman, really, I guess, a young woman's journey into the world and, yeah. and ending with a marriage. Yeah. But it's harder to see George Eliot in mm. that tradition. I was going to say that the elephant in the room was perhaps Jane Austen, that we hadn't mentioned Austen over the series uh, too much, perhaps deliberately, because Austen is seen as the first great woman novelist and we're interested in, you know, kind of uncovering the... Um, That's because I just start quoting um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I've been thinking for a really long time that I just want to have only Lady Catherine de Bourgh quotes as my Twitter, like, um, insolent girl. Uh, and unfortunately, obviously, I'm now deeply influenced by the BBC. You know, where I just really want to kind of just go, oh, the shades of Pemberley be thus polluted in editorial meetings. But yeah, but that, I think that I, I, I've deliberately been trying to stay away from yeah. Jane Austen because I think the feeling is that that she's too dominant, that mm. people are kind of willing, like, she's the one that gets through, like, she, this is Smurfette syndrome, you know, the yeah. idea that you're allowed one. She's the yeah. one. And we can all agree that Jane Austen was good. Yeah. Except, actually, we don't like Persuasion that much and we don't like Mansfield Park. <laughs> so, really, we're just talking about Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Hey, I love Persuasion. Um, I think the important thing is there's a common culture here. There's a common kind of literary inheritance. Um, in the special collections at Cardiff University, which is where I work, there's a copy of Bernie's Diaries and Letters which is you know a multi-volume expensively bound thing and it's um, a mother who there's an inscription in the in the flyleaf which is you know it's a mother to her son in the 1860s you know this is an expensive gift this is a personal family gift um, she's still known she's still going strong even if there's been some kind of damage begun to be wrought on her reputation so you ask about you know um, the Brontes for example the Brontes are well-read children um, that they've got access to you know whatever's lying around but I don't see why that wouldn't have included some of these writers who still have a sort of cachet at that point um, Charlotte Bronte is um, an avid reader of the ladies magazine which means that she shares a culture with somebody like Charlotte Smith, who wrote 
poetry for it in her teens. You know, so there's this, um, there, there is this shared culture between the women that we've been talking about who have been, in a large sense, rather forgotten, and the ones who come later who we can get an image of in our minds when we think of them, like Austen, like the Brontes on their Wuthering Moor, like George Eliot. There's common ground there, there's common culture. And can you think of any female writers today who you feel are influenced by 18th century? I mean, I sort of, I, I think of... I think of Hilary Mantel mm. and A Place of Greater Safety. I mean, because it is a novel about the 18th century specifically, mm. but about it, it's got, I mean, by God, it's big. But, you know, after modernism happened mm-hmm. and after we began to have, you know, all the post-colonialism and all those kind of things, what, you know, is there an essence of the 18th century novel that you see anywhere today? I think you can still see ones, I would say something like someone like Jonathan Franzen, it was almost kind of quite 19th mm. century novel. They are those big kind of, aspiring to say a big thing Mm. but do you see anybody who's doing anything that you think is influenced by the 18th century well in an in a narrow sense of content um there's a fantastic book by beryl bainbridge called according to queenie which is about um hester threlpiotzi and her family so that's you know if anyone wants to kind of find out more about her but in a in a in a literary imaginative sense then that's a really good start um, it's an excellent question about about the form. One person I did think of is um, Emma Donoghue uh, wrote a, a collection of short stories, The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits, mm. which is a different, and there's some Irish and some English, and those are based around real historical stories. So mm. she's clearly somebody who is who knows that period quite well. Yeah, I'm not sure I could necessarily argue that Room is mm. very in any way obviously influenced by by the 18th century. I think- I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say and say in answer to your question, no, I think there's something we've lost, actually. Something quite, you know, it's, it's difficult to sum up 18th century women's writing in one sort of sweep, and certainly as an academic, you're discouraged from doing that. But, you know, there's something about, for me, the best 18th century novels that is rollicking and weird and bizarre and surreal. Um, Frances Burney has this, you know, Evelina, we discussed it, it's, the, it's a courtship novel. It's in some ways quite... A novel that you know Austen riffs off, but also this monkey appears and starts biting everyone at the end for no apparent reason, but it's there. It's important, and you know there's all these kind of um, glimmers of something something quite violent, savage, and grotesque below the surface. And it's very kind of exciting writing in that way, or I think it is. And yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can think of anything that does that today. It makes me think about film and TV as well, and actually. I, I, I agree with you. I wonder if it might be that in some of the... You might even actually maybe see the legacies in what we probably... I don't know whether it's practitioners would feel about us calling it chiclet, about courtship novels. And, and some of them can be really quite, you know, ambitious in their, in their scope. But there's, because the, the market dictates that it's, they get packaged up and, and sold as, as chiclet. I'm thinking of someone like Vary McFarlane, who I know, who's written very funny comic novels. And there is something of that... You know that rollick. I think the rollick. Mm. But I agree with you that the, the the combination of the sort of slight sauciness, the awareness of a world that's you know that's very mannered and very ordered. You know, you know your place in it. I think that's the thing. It's harder maybe to be transgressive now because mm. the boundaries themselves are so. I mean, we're so used to talking about you know liminal people and and and, and ideas of, of of the, the queasiness that comes through Harriet Freak wearing trousers. You know, you just mm. it's, in a society that's much more pick and mix, it's kind of harder to recreate mm. that that feeling. Can I also just say, um, 
next time someone's thinking, you know, someone with a great budget and whatever is thinking of making a TV adaptation, can you please not do Austin again? Please give Bernie a chance. <laughs> do Evelina. It would be fantastic. You'd still get all the dancing scenes and the sexual tension, but you'd also get monkeys. It would be great. Is that give me a call. Is that with the sac- is that with the sacres? Am I? This is if I finally yes. got the right one. Yes, you'd okay, have the you old woman sacre, which is really weird and horrible yes, and violent. Like the idea of a loaded group of really posh people standing around watching toothless old crones sort of fight but it's a perfect metaphor for the way in which um age and experience in a woman is just absolutely you know knocked about and beaten to a bloody pulp in that society it works it can be so marvelous liz if you've got a nomination for what you want the you know what if emma thompson's listening what would i like her to adapt into into a, a film some of the novels are pretty clunky and she wrote them really fast for money and she wrapped them up really kind of strangely, um, sometimes unsatisfyingly at the end. But I would li- love to see something by Charlotte Smith just because I would love to see people read Charlotte Smith. I would love to see kind of cheap, um, accessible paperbacks, you know, Oxford World's Classics Penguin, if you're listening, that kind of, that we would love to, to have Charlotte Smith, these novels of ideas, these uh, amazing stories of kind of women's struggles. Um, it would be that it would be anything by Charlotte Smith in a new edition. See, I'm in a fortunate position because one of my favourite writers from the end of that period, Anne Lister, they did make a BBC mm. Four, you know, great lesbianism in the coalfields. Yeah. I mean, what, what what's not to love yeah, about that? Brilliant. So um, before we go, this is the end of our six episodes. <laughs> We've wearily crossed the finish line of the, of the incredibly long 18th century. Have either of you missed a chance to tell a really dirty anecdote? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I think then I feel that we can retire from the well, battlefield. Liz, Liz has told I've the story. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, well, maybe we can like that can be a teaser for uh, you know if we do another series that there'll be 100 percent more rude anecdotes. But thank you so much to both of you and thank you to all our contributors um, to this series. And uh, you can read about the show notes. We'll put about uh, recommendations for, for things to read. And if you're listening, do please reissue some nice paperbacks and make a glossy Hollywood film. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is John Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 